Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into true crime cases through the lens of a trained investigator and former prosecutor turned judge. If you are sensitive to expletives, anatomical descriptions, and accurate descriptions of true crime scenes, this podcast may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Megan. And welcome to part two, Megan. I'm so excited. Part two slash three. Yes, part two, kind of three. That is for sure. If you listen to episode 190 and then 191 before this. You and, have to. Uh, Go back if you have not. Yeah, don't start here. It's if bad. you're new to Crime Curious, hi, hello, thanks for listening. But go back two episodes so that you are uh, caught up, please. Otherwise, this will not make any sense to you. So where I left you with. Oh, jump right in. I left you with the police telling Victor and Danny Paquette's family that they believe that his death was a hunting accident. They've got the bullet from or a, a stray bullet rifle. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to introduce some uh, new players that I haven't introduced yet. And this is where it's going to get juicy for you, Miss Megan. Okay. Give me Re- the drama, mama. Remember... <laughs> Just start saying that from now on. I really like that. Uh, Remember Denise Messier? Danny's ex. She is currently hiding in 1985 during Danny's murder. She and her daughters are hiding in Anchorage, Alaska. Well, Denise's brother, his name is Philip Messier. He's married to a woman named Kathleen McGuire. Now, Kathleen was a lawyer in 1985 working in her new role as assistant attorney general. Okay. She's prosecuting cases. mm -hmm. In the summer of 1985, Melanie, Denise's daughter that Danny adopted so that she would have the same last name. The oldest one. Who's like 10 or 11 or something. When, well, Well, she was when they left. Yes. Now she is a 15 year old girl. Oh shit. She's been gone a few years. They've been gone for four years. So what happens in 1985, just before Danny's murder, the summer before Danny's murder, Melanie goes and has a visit with her uncle, Philip, and her aunt, Kathleen. In the same hometown as her adoptive father? In Hopkinton, New Hampshire, which is 30 minutes away from where Danny lives in Hookset. Okay. No, Danny does not know that Melanie is there. Okay. Danny has not seen his ex-wife, Denise, or those children, his children, or Melanie, his adoptive daughter, since 1981, so this visit is a secret, but Melanie loved it at her uncle's, and she was struggling at the time to get along with her mother in Alaska. She hated living in Alaska. She was a teenage girl. Uh Uh-huh. They, at some point in time, hate their moms and hate where they live and hate everything. Life is stupid. I don't like how my socks feel. Right. This lipstick is too pink. Correct. Right. So that August in 1985, after the visit, the summer visit went so well, Philip Messier convinced his sister Denise to let Melanie move in with them and attend Hopkinton High. This is is an interesting game they're playing. So she was a sophomore, Melanie that is. She was also a brilliant soccer player and she was allowed to play on the boys soccer team because there was not a girls soccer team like there was in Alaska. And no one in Danny's family knew that Melanie was back. During the investigation, remember, Victor said, hey, 
there's a whole family that does not like my brother. And That's right. His ex-wife has been gone for four years. The Messiers. Mm-hmm. So the police follow up on this and they discover in their investigation, now the Messiers, Kathleen McGuire and Philip Messier, husband and wife, do cooperate with the investigation and they discover that Melanie is back. And, and you know, Victor's like convinced that the Messier family would have the most to gain from Danny's death. After all, Denise has been hiding somewhere for four years. And he still has some custodial rights to the oh, children. Yes, he has every weekend visit. Right. And he hasn't been able to exercise that because nope. the kids have been gone. They were taken. So let's take him out of the picture. So, well, and that's what Victor's saying. Right. Is he's like, listen, they would have the most to gain because then Denise could come back with her kids and be with her family and not have to live in Alaska anymore. So the police do go and investigate this. At this same time that this is happening, another sibling of Philip Messier was caught embezzling, another sister was caught embezzling $25,000 from her employer. Now, this does not look good for the for Kathleen McGuire, the new assistant attorney general, that her married family uh, is involved in some crimes. For embezzlement, yep. And now also suspected as being part of the murder. Girl, it's a small town. We can't help Mm -hmm. what our families do. Correct. When police investigated where the money that the, the embezzled money went, there was not a lot accounted for, okay, which more than likely... This woman probably spent on like non-material goods and consumables. Sure. Expensive dinners out. Services. Gas. Yeah. That kind of thing. But to Victor, this looked suspicious. Did she pay cash to have Danny killed? And was Kathleen McGuire somehow pulling strings to cover this up from her position? Oh, no. I will say this right now. Kathleen and her husband, Phil. Exonerated. Always cooperated with any questions from the police. And to this day, no evidence has come forth to suggest that they had any involvement or prior acknowledge of the embezzlement or the murder of Danny. Kathleen worked her way through the ranks really fast. In 1988, she became chief of the criminal bureau for only one year before she then became a judge. And then in 1989, became an associate judge on the New Hampshire Supreme Court. Okay. So she's a Supreme Court justice. And it just, to from Victor's point of view, but remember where he's coming from. He's coming from a 17-year-old child who lost his mother in a way that authorities ruled as being a suicide. And it clearly was not a suicide. And so he doesn't trust anybody no. in authority. No. At all. Especially because, as you told us before, there's a number of law enforcement officers locally who understood that it wasn't a suicide and there seemed to be some type of a bureaucracy, yeah. a bureaucratic decision yep. being made. So I can see how, from his point of view, this looks extremely suspicious. There is Kathleen McGuire, who yep. has, who is in authority, has jobs of authority, and her married family... Hates his brother, um, you know, is in one of them is embellishing, embellishing, embezzling. Jesus, Charnel. Um, Third time's a charm. Yeah, uh, money and there's money unaccounted for. I can see how Victor's like this tracks. Okay, yeah, there's something fishy, mm-hmm. hinky. If we're gonna go technical, well, I with like it. that. And it's a police hinky. officer term. Uh-huh. Things are hinky. It's it is very true. So they keep the case open, but I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> That over the years, Victor, I, I do really love this. Roland Lammy is the lead investigator on Danny's case very early on. 
Okay. Like from, I believe it was from day one. And so Victor kind of starts this thing where every year, because remember right now they're keeping the case open, but it's chalked up as a hunting accident. Yes. They're not closing it, but they, they're saying it's a hunting accident. And they did ask hunters to bring their rifles forward to try to match it up. Some did. Lots didn't. Right. You know. I'm not getting involved in this shit. Correct. I don't want it pinned on me. I know I wasn't anywhere near those woods. Right. right? So, I mean, they did did try. But Victor made it a point to call Roland Lammy every November to ask. This is how it went. Okay. This is Victor. I want to know what you're doing to solve my brother's murder. And, and uh, Roland Lamy would always say, we've not forgotten about your brother's case. The case remains open. And if we get more evidence, we will follow those leads. Victor always then said, fuck you and hangs up. Oh, this, this was just on. his Thanksgiving mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. Every November, <laughs> this went on for years and it, it became a thing. Roland would expect, uh, you know, this, this phone call to come. I'm about to get my fuck you very much message yep. from, yep. from Victor. It, it's November patch Victor through. It's time to get my fuck you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So there, were, I appreciate his willingness just to accept the fuck you, by the way. Yes, exactly. And understand where it's, where hey, it's coming from. Hey, when you're from. a public servant, you just, you take mm-hmm. it sometimes. And I, I, think I accept that your opinion. Swear at me if you would like. Really, the investigators did want this solved, but they weren't lying. They're in within the jurisdiction of their job. That's all they got. If new information comes forward, we will investigate it, right? right. I'm going to tell you that there were rumors around town. Tips were called in and leads were followed up with, but nothing that the police felt that they could move on. So now I'm going to take you back to part one. Where we started part one, I told you that Edward Coolidge was released in 1991. Remember, Edward Coolidge killed Pamela Mason. You're bringing Edward back to me? We're bringing Edward back for just a minute. Okay. Edward Coolidge killed Pamela Mason. He most definitely killed Sandra Valade, but was never charged for that murder because the attorney at the time said we got him for one, no need to get him for two. Edward Coolidge was highly thought, he was never questioned about, but since Rena Paquette, Danny's mother, had information that Edward was the killer of Pamela Mason, she called those tips in, spoke to the police, and was dead two days later. Correct. So... He's released on a technicality in 1991 because of an illegal search and seizure of his vehicle. And just prior to his release, and they knew he was about to be released, a friend of Victor Paquette, his name was Richard Barron, he had a theory that Danny's death and Rena's death were somehow connected. Now, this came out after, after Danny's death. Investigators were collecting information on Danny and they discovered that while Danny was in the mental hospital, remember he went to the mental hospital um, when year. Denise Messier left him for an entire year? In the hospital, he underwent hypnosis. And in those hypnosis sessions, he recalled the morning of his mother's death, seeing his mother argue with a man at the house who was wearing a white coat. Now, Edward oh, Coolidge... Oh, that's never come up before. It has not. And Edward Coolidge did wear a white coat. He was a bakery bakery delivery driver and this was his uniform. So the information was confusing because the police reports at the time said that Danny Danny slept until 10 o'clock and never saw his mother. He woke up at 10. He was looking around the house trying to find her. If you remember from part one there, he called his uncle John. Yes. To, so, and Danny's not here to clarify this information. 
I'm going to tell you, though, that sometimes during traumatic events, our brain will literally block out information as a coping mechanism. So you, there are things that you might not remember until you are in an altered state of consciousness, like hypnosis. But again, Danny's not here. It's nope. 1991, and Danny's not here to clarify, to ask about the, his, this hypnosis session. But this information, Baron, uh, Richard Barron is like, you know, I'm going to make myself investigator. I'm going to do some things... And, and see um, if these are connected. So Baron finds and interviews the first responder on the scene that day that Reno was found. And this man's name is David Lorne. So he is a first responder. He saw Rena Paquette in that barn, lying flat on her back, arms and legs sprawled out, burnt, you know, burnt, but not withered. All right. So this first responder responders informed Richard Barron that there were things from that scene that bothered him. There was a large log that was braced over the door. There was no way that Rena could have lifted it or braced it against the door herself, especially from inside of the barn. They all assumed that it was a murder. So all the first responders and the police were surprised to hear that it was ruled a suicide. And whenever anyone was questioned about it, they were told by the attorney general, William Maynard at the time to just let it go it was discussed a lot at the time between the police officers, but their hands were tied. It was 1964, and their boss essentially was giving them an order. Something's up, man. So <clears throat> Richard Barron is interviewing and, and making himself super sleuth on the case, and they start talking to the media. They want movement on this. And they got a TV special where people reenact Danny's death in 19, this is 1991, so they got a TV special where they went over um, Rena's murder and then they have people reenact Danny's death. They also, because of this TV special and this media attention, they did get permission to exhume Rena's body and have it reexamined by a state medical examiner because at the time in 1964 when she died, there wasn't a state medical examiner. Yeah, just a regular examiner. county medical examiner. And just Her let me point out- body went to Harvard- Oh, they did send it to Harvard. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Yep. So now they're having a state medical examiner exhume her body and do another autopsy. So the record keeping of 1964, where they discover not as thorough as they were in 1991. I'm sure. Or even today, of I'm course. Sure. Um, so they didn't have a ton of comparatives. They didn't have a lot of photos. They didn't have very good documentation at all. So... The medical examiner is not able to tell her exact cause of death, but he was able to change her death certificate to undetermined so that it no longer read suicide. suicide. Which I think, I mean, that in itself is is good for the family. What were you going to point out? Oh, no, I was just talking about with uh, county medical examiners at the time, but this was, they were sent mm -hmm. to Harvard. Yeah. So county medical examiners in small towns are actually usually just one physician in your mm -hmm. town is how they used to be. They may not even necessarily have had a specialty. Right. I mean, at one point in time in our town, our um, a local pediatrician mm -hmm. was, was a medical examiner. Yep. So anyway, yeah. it didn't matter. Disregard because it went to Harvard. But I do find it interesting and I think I had asked, so way back two episodes ago, if they were ever able to find, because of the extent of the burns on her body, any type of blunt force trauma mm -hmm. or anything like that. But even exhuming her body and with a new assessment, they couldn't find anything. Right. But the examiner did tell Victor Paquette that the fact, the, the way that she was found. Yeah. 
they have to take this the scene into consideration, which is why there's often a conversation with law enforcement. Sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad. But in this situation, how could you rule it a suicide knowing that she was barred in with, mm-hmm. you know, with a log, like the door was blocked so yep. she couldn't get out. And we know that the way that she, if she succumbed to fire, it would have been a lot different her body would have right yes yes she was laying there as if she was burned after she had been killed Most there was definitely. no movements there wasn't any of the weird facial or hand like with your arms they like curl up yep. and things like that Nothing sorry like to that. be gross but that's what but happens i mean that's just the truth of it yep yeah. and there was none of that and that bothered this state medical examiner okay. he's like no and that is why he was willing to take suicide off the I, death certificate i appreciate his professionalism mm-hmm. He and your name's would, on the line at this point. Yes, you, you have exactly. To, you have to do what is the right thing to do, whether people like it or not. Yep, yep. So he most definitely was like, nope, I I am not going to say that this is suicide, not with the way that she was found. We do have to put undetermined because he could not come up with the exact, you know, um, cause, but it's okay. been it's been years. So this was good for the family, at least to have that. But they all of this was because Richard Barron had suspected that these two murders were connected. connected. Well, then in March 1992, the family, along with Richard Barron, so by now Edward Coolidge has been released, and the TV special has been done to try to connect to the two murders. In March 1992, Richard Barron and part members of the family, including Victor, went on a local daytime talk show once again, stating the case, its possible connection to Rita Rena's unsolved murder, and asked the public to come forward with any information. You know, what are the chances that one family is struck with two tragedies like this? So within a week, two mysterious letters show up without authors, and they are, are typed out on typewriter. The letters implicated a man named Eric Windhurst and Melanie Paquette who would what? have been 17 at the time of the murders, murder, Danny's murder. Richard Barron passed those letters on to Detective Roland Lammy, and he informed Lammy that a female who would not identify herself called Richard Barron and said that Melanie Paquette had bragged to her in high school about how she and her stepfather, how she had her stepfather killed. So, Lammy, Roland Lammy, knew this was not the first time that Eric's name had come up in the investigation, but he had, Eric had been questioned in 1985 and had a solid alibi. Plus, there was only 32, I'm sorry, I misspoke. I said 18 inches total of Danny's body exposed, and that, that is, there was 32 inches of Danny's body exposed. I apologize. That's okay. Um, We've listened to men talk long enough that I understand people might misinterpret inches. It's the measuring system's complicated. (laughs) Measuring is hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that must, I must have just typed it differently. It was metric. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, but just to get this straight, Melanie is the oldest daughter. Yeah. adopted, Adopted daughter. Adopted daughter of Danny. Who happens oldest daughter? Who happens to be in town, and he doesn't mm-hmm. know he, that Danny she's has there. No idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who is Eric? We. I'm going to tell you. Okay, because right I need in to know next paragraph. Thank you. I need Eric to know how is. they know each other. Yep. Yep. I will get to that. So, the police they question Eric. They did. They followed up on the leads and the tips. But given the fact that there was 32 inches of Danny's body showing, and that it would have been from over 300 yards. It was an impossible shot for a 17-year-old boy. 
Okay. So in 1985, Eric Windhurst was a junior in Hopkinton High and captain of the soccer team and an all-around well-liked and popular athlete. And he was friends with Melanie Paquette. Now, Melanie was new. Remember, she was a sophomore. She's the new girl. She's the new girl in 1985. She had visited her aunt and uncle that summer, moved there, unbeknownst to any of the Paquette family, and she's 30 minutes away from Hookset, where Danny and his family live. So she's a great soccer player, and Eric is the captain of the soccer team. So, and like I said, they let Melanie be on the soccer team. She's on the boys' soccer though, team. Yep, she's on the boys' no, soccer team. No girls. Mm-hmm. Equivalent. Eric and Melanie developed a sister brother type relationship. And on the day of Danny Paquette's murder, Eric and Melanie were at a state championship game for one of the teams at the school that was many miles out of town. Oh, then it wasn't the alibi. So in 1985, the tips and rumors that Eric was bragging about shooting a man were followed up on and led nowhere based on the improbability of the shot and the fact that he was at the state. Why do people do that? You know, thing. The bragging about something that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Like, way to to screw up a case investigation. Right. Well, and now you can see how this got so complicated for investigators, right? Yeah. Melanie Paquette was also questioned, and she was upset about her stepfather's murder, even if she was hiding from him. She also confirmed that she and Eric were at the state championship game, and that very night, Melanie left for a class trip to Quebec. So this is all confirmed by her guardians, Kathleen McGuire and Philip Messier, as well as Eric's parents. Yes, they went to the state championship game together, and then they got home in time for Melanie to get on the bus to go to her school trip to Quebec. And... Just let me point out that there, it is obvious he doesn't know she's there because with his yeah. mental issues that he's had before and his need to find his family. Oh, yeah. If he knew she was around or had an inkling, he would have been stalking. Definitely. He would have been over there. Definitely. He would have, he would have attempted so to So why would contact. they have drawn attention to themselves by right. doing this? Right. So now in 1992, with these letters in hand, they want to re-interview Eric and Melanie. Because, you know, these, these letters are now saying, hey... Um, I was, I was a high schooler. Melanie told me that she had her stepfather killed. And then a second letter that's written by someone different is saying, I know that Eric Windhurst did this. Oh my. So Eric was living in Colorado at the time. He left Hopping, Hopkinton High after high school and tried to make a life for himself. When the police arrive at Eric's parents' home, his father agrees to let them take the only hunting rifle in the house his rifle, his father's rifle, and have it tested. The ballistics came back that it was negative. This was not the gun that fired the bullet. He called his son in Colorado, told him that due to some letters, he needs to get back to Hookset so that he can, he told his son, like, these letters are pretty damning. You need to come back and be questioned. And they did. He did. They also contacted Melanie, who had moved to Idaho and was married with two children at this point in time. This is 1992. Uh, they questioned her over the phone, and, and she said, you know, it's really difficult to concentrate and answer questions over the phone. Can you send me a list of questions, and I will write you the responses? This is very unorthodox mm-hmm. for a police investigation, but they agreed, and she did so. They wrote they wrote out their set of questions. She wrote the answers back. The story never changes. They were at the state championship game, and then she went to Quebec for her um, trip, trip. Last trip. So that's the end of the letters. The tra- trail goes cold again, all right? Now, you have to read the book to get more of a scoop here, but there is a guy who dated Melanie just out of high school. During their relationship, she was troubled, but she shared with him that her father, Danny Paquette, 
used to sexually abuse her growing up. So in high school, when she moved back to New Hampshire, she had him killed. Oh. Okay. This relationship did not work out, and this man soon discovered there was a lot about Melanie that he could not trust. She had lied about violent acts against her. Like, for example, she said in high school she got mugged after leaving soccer practice. She also told that to Eric Windhurst. I'm just going to insert that here now, too. Eric thinks that happened as well. Um, She also lied about being raped, and then she later came clean. So at this time, he chalks this story up as when they're dating as a need for attention as well. The story about Danny Paquette sexually sexually abusing her. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Because that's a a new motive. And her having him killed. Right. right? So until uh, this man, this ex-boyfriend of hers, became a reporter in 2003. And something reminded him of this story, and it's always bothered him. So was it real? And, um, you know, as a reporter, he did some digging, and he saw that Danny was, in fact, shot by an impossible shot in 1985. And I have to um, retract my statement. He became a reporter in 1993. Oh, okay. Not 2003. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in 1993, this he calls Melanie out of the blue. It is like, hey remember when you told me about your father, yep, stepfather yep, sexually abusing him? Yes. And that you had him killed. And um, she was like, yeah, she confirmed. Yes, I was sexually abused by Danny Paquette. And he, she doesn't say the words exactly, but alludes to like knowing what happened to him and why. Then she wants to know why he cares now. And her ex-boyfriend's like, well, um, because if I have knowledge about a murder, I can't live with myself as a reporter. You know, Oops. that I didn't like report on this and that I didn't tell somebody like, is that true? Like, did you have him murdered? And Melanie's like, no, let's just drop it. <laughs> so Oops. Melanie just wants him to drop it. Of all the days to pick up your and, phone with and an she unknown even, number. Like, kind of backtracks like, I don't even remember telling you about that. Like, yes, he did sexually abuse me, but I don't remember telling you that I had him killed, you know, and I was really messed up back then. OK, I lied about a lot of things like that's who I was. So regardless, he does contact the Hookset police and he gives the information to Detective Lammy. This is 1993. So Victor continues to call the department over the years. Now, of course, people have retired and taken other jobs, but he still calls. Detective Lammy, fuck you. Right, exactly. Happy holidays. Now remember Agrafiotis? Agrafiotis, yes. I remember you told me to mm-hmm. remember him. I told you to remember Agrafiotis. The rookie? The rookie in 1985. Yep, took video and pictures of Danny Paquette's uh, crime scene. Well, he becomes chief agrafiotis in the mid-1990s. Good job, buddy. It was for another county, all right? And he always had to drive by the Paquette farm to get to his job in the other county as chief. But then in the late 1990s, Hookset needs a new chief. And Agrafiotis was like, you know what? I think I'm the man for the job because I still live in this county, but I drive to another county to be a I'm chief. I'm coming back home to yeah. lead, to lead my people. And apparently it was a really hard job to get because they had hundreds of applicants. They used to for law enforcement mm-hmm. jobs. It is not the same now. It is not. But they, they did award it to Agrafiotis. So he okay. is now the chief of, police, of Manchester of County. Manchester. I love mm-hmm. it. Yep. And which includes Hookset. So at this point, Chief Agrafiotis is instruct ha, um, instructs the department to patch all calls every uh, November from Victor Paquette right to him each year because Detective Lammy's gone. He's he is a retired. retired. All right. 
This is the only, Graffiotis is the only officer on the department that Victor actually didn't despise and did have some small amount of trust in over the years. So the response was still the same. Okay, so. <laughs> what have you done to solve my brother's murder? Yes, and and of course, Graffiotis would say, it's a cold homicide case. Only the state police and the attorney general can investigate because the local office did not have a cold case unit. And so if more information comes forward, then we can investigate. Fuck you. Happy holidays. Exactly. You okay. Get the fuck you. So now we're, we're fast forwarding. That was the late 1990s when a Graffiotis took, uh, took over as chief of Manchester. Okay. Okay. Police. So now we're going to fast forward to fall 2003. Oh, we jumped. We jumped. It's nearly 20 years since Danny's death. Chief Agrafiotis takes on a huge undertaking. Now, as I said, his department does not have a cold case unit, which means that all cold case investigations do not happen by his unit at all. But Chief Agrafiotis wants to hire a single private investigator that can just focus on Danny Paquette's case. But they will need the attorney general's permission to even investigate a cold case. And the chief was actually really good at budgeting. So he had worked out in his budget skills to have a small amount of money available to fund the investigation as well. But that also required special permission to use the department's funds to fund a special project for a unit that they don't even have. That's supposed to be the state attorney's right. jurisdiction. The attorney, the attorney general gives the go ahead and Chief Agrafiotis already has a private investigator in mind for the job. An 80-year-old retired detective named Bill Shackford. Okay. Hi, Bill. Yes. Bill has a slew of experience as a detective under his belt, among many other admiral, admirable accolades, um, including being a hookset police officer until the 1970s when he retired and then went on to continue other criminal investigation works in different parts. So at the time of Danny's death, he had not worked on the case or had any connection to it, which makes him the perfect guy for the job. Oh, uh, we need clean eyes, yep. new yep. eyes. Everything. Yeah. He is not influenced by anything. He has fresh eyes. He That's is just a better word. Mm -hmm. I couldn't come up. New clean eyes. eyes. Clean yes, eyes. New clean eyes. eyes. Fresh eyes. He's using some of that clear eye. <laughs> I've read too much cannibal stuff lately. So the files, I'm going to tell you on the Paquette case, over the 20, over like spanning the 20 years that it's now been at mm -hmm. this point in time in 2003, were over 3,000 pages long, Megan. And Shackford can immediately see that there were some unorthodox techniques used, such as sending Melanie Paquette a questionnaire in the early 90s. Yeah, I don't like it. And accepting her responses. And the lack of the follow-up on leads like the woman who saw a dark blue car parked in the woods around the corner from the Paquette farm that she had never seen there before, and that was never followed up on. So he's he's seeing a couple of potential strings to pull at that weren't pulled at before. Great. Possib Can I throw out there, which may have nothing to do with the case, but sure. I also was wondering, like, did they look and see if there were any um, vets in the area or people who had a sniper or sharpshooter experience? Because, again, I'm going back to the, with this impossible shot. It would have required some type of experience. So I just didn't know how much they had canvassed or, or checked on that information. I don't know that information. Okay. I do think that I'm not getting the impression that they didn't do their job here. I would suspect that that was probably... There were just um, a, part a of couple it. leads that mm -hmm. didn't get followed up on how this new set of eyes would have liked. This one can seem very innocuous. This is just a, I saw a dark blue car that I've never seen parked before around okay. the corner. 
That's all it said. It tells us nothing. So, you know, could it just have been easily missed or just chalked up as not important because we think that this is a hunting accident? I'm, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Was it purposely not followed up on? Maybe. We don't, we don't know. So Shackford hits the ground running. He interviews people all over again, even if they were interviewed before. He compares their statements. He also has the burden, Megan, of disproving the original theory of a hunting accident or shooting range accident. Yeah. Right? This takes time, but he's able to get those geotopical graphs that I talked about earlier in part one of how the shooting range's location as it related to Danny's property, and he makes a really big discovery. Something that wasn't possible to be known or seen in 1985 is that the shooting range is far, way farther below sea level than the Paquette property. So it would have been the upward trajectory. Which means the bullet would have had to travel through several hills before striking Danny Paquette right in the heart. So this completely rules out the the, um, shooting range. It can't be the shooting range. Not the shooting range. So he does his job and rules that out. He also follows up, follows up on tips that never were followed up, like the person that said that they saw this blue car parked, right? So he, Shackford tracks the tipster down. It was a woman who at the time was a teenager. She was like 14, which is another reason why I think that possibly her tip wasn't taken seriously. Probably. Because she was 14. And at the time, and she gave the description of the car, a small, dark blue, kind of certain make, you know, that she took note of at the time. So Shackford looks to see who had vehicles registered in 1985 of that color and make. And guess whose name pops up? Who? Eric Winters. Oh, the teenager. The teenager, the 17-year-old boy. So he's like, you know what? I think that we need to do a face-to-face interview at this point in time with Melanie Paquette. But she's in Boise, Idaho. And so they make the trip and surprise her with a visit on July 14th, 2004. At this point in time, Melanie Paquette is a stay-at-home. She's now Melanie Cooper. She got, you know, she was married. She's a stay-at-home mother of five. Okay. They had just, when they knocked on the door, I mean, they really surprised her, Megan. She was in the middle of a workout. Okay. When she answers the door. Uh, hi. Melanie would later say that she knew this day would eventually come. She makes the decision that she has ran long enough and it's time to talk. Shit. So Shackford and the two hookset police officers that he brought with him on this trip were shocked that she was willing to talk to them without a warrant or anything like that, right? Melanie told them the truth or, or her version of the truth. She told them right away that, her, that uh, yes, I told Eric Windhurst that my stepfather, Danny Paquette, had sexually abused me as a child and that I was in hiding from him. Uh, she had went to counseling with her aunt, Kathleen McGuire, because the two were not getting along in the fall of 1985. So she didn't get along with mom, so she moved, and now she's not getting now she's along, not getting with, along with aunt. Mm-hmm. Who is her legal guardian and an attorney general. Mm-hmm. And so, right, you know, uh, Kathleen McGuire was like, we, let's get some counseling. Let's work Good. together in counseling. Just shortly, this is just shortly after she moved in. And she didn't want to go back to Alaska and live with her mom. So she really wanted to make it work with Kathleen. So they agreed to go to counseling. Melanie told the counselor of the reason that they were hiding from Danny was due to the sexual abuse, which the counselor was mandated to report, and she did. Right. Melanie knew that as soon as CPS showed up to question Danny, he would know that she was back in Hookset. <gasps> so she confided in Eric about the abuse and her family troubles, 
and she said Eric volunteered to take him out, but she never believed that it would really happen. So they have this confession. Melanie, Melanie claims that she stayed, so they, they concocted this, we're going to go to the state championship game. They get in the car together. Melanie's claiming that the whole time she did not believe that Eric Windhurst was going to shoot Danny. She then claims that they were in the woods. I'm doing all this by memory, if you can Yeah, I can tell. tell. They were in the woods together, and she stayed by a rock wall. And then Danny went up to the edge of the woods. She couldn't see him anymore. Not Danny, excuse me. Eric went to the edge of the woods. She couldn't see him anymore. She heard a shot. Then all of a sudden, Eric's running through the woods telling her, we yep get in the car we gotta go we gotta go so they get in the car danny eric is like it's done whatever they went to a restaurant believe it was mcdonald's and hung out for a while because they're supposed to be at this championship game all day right and then she shows up at her parents house gets on the bus to go to quebec then the next day was informed that her stepfather had been killed been killed okay there is one problem here that I discovered when I was reading the book. I wondered too. Eric Windhurst lives 30 miles away from Danny Paquette and has never met him. So how would he know who he was? Bingo. If she stayed by a rock wall, Megan. How would he know? How would he know which one to shoot? Because there were two men out there. Ah, uh, because it wasn't Eric. Or? It was her. This is Melanie's version. Here's the thing too with Melanie She's already, I have to be very careful here. She's already been known to have lied Mm -hmm. about things like being assaulted and being raped prior. Mm -hmm. She's indicating that they moved because of sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. which we know is not the case. Mm -hmm. At least it's nothing's been, nothing has come up in any type of divorce records or transcripts that mom said, I'm, I'm getting away from this guy because he sexually abuses my kid. I want to stop you right there because I feel that we need to do this. In, I have it in a few sentences down, but I want to do it right here. Okay. No one ever came forward at the end of this case. No one ever comes forward and says, I was sexually abused by Danny Paquette. We have absolutely, this was never explored in court. This is literally this woman's word against Danny, who is no longer here because he was murdered. We, Victor strongly believes that this is a huge lie that okay. this never happened. All of Danny's family believes that this never happened. There was, yes, he was a ladies' man, but there were no allegations of him being inappropriate with minors ever. And I feel that it is not fair of us to assume that this, what, what he was never given the option to even be tried for any any allegation like this. Sure. And for anybody that might be upset that we wouldn't believe a, a victim statement if she really believes that, that this happened, if it did happen, the only reason I'm bringing up that I have a concern with it is because she literally said that that was the reason uh-huh. that they moved. Right. And we know that it's not. Correct. So Correct. that's that's what I wanted to put together. Mm-hmm. Um, if it happened, it hasn't been explored in court. There's nothing to corroborate it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you could convict, by the way, not that this happened in this case, but off of a victim statements alone. Mm-hmm. But um, definitely. it's just not feeling, it's not sitting right. Mm-hmm. So Eric... And it, in the book, does a very good job of, of explaining, letting everybody know okay. there was nothing to corroborate this. And we're not saying that it didn't happen, but there is, you know, he is dead. He was murdered. So we have, we do not, we don't know. 
but we're we'll get to a little bit more about Melanie that I think is going. Okay, because I'm telling you're going to tell me that we've interviewed Eric now, right? Because I got to know this. Well, what happens first before they interview Eric is that they decide to. So I told you what Melanie tells the police. Yes. Right. Her version of of all of this. Remember when I mentioned when Duarte is giving compressions on Danny, he sees a neighbor putting mail in his mailbox. Yes. Melanie remembers that neighbor walking out to put mail in his mailbox because they flew by. They had to drive by Danny Paquette's house to get away, a way to make it look like they were out of town. Yes. They had to head in that direction that drove them right by Danny Paquette's house. And she recalled seeing that person in that, in that mailbox right before he gets called. There's Mm -hmm. some corroboration there. Yeah. So the next day after Melanie tells all this to the police, she agreed to meet the police officer at the officers at the Boise Police Department, and they had her call Eric Winters while they recorded it. They're trying to get Eric to admit his part. Eric was smart enough on the phone to not speak in, he spoke in roundabout ways, but he never openly admits his involvement. He does give enough information to confirm Melanie's account, though, but it's still not enough to move on the arrest. And the book does a good job of giving you, like, the transcript of it. It's very long. They mm-hmm. were on the phone for hours. Yeah. And so um, a lot of times he was just like, Melanie, you know, it's over. We're just going to forget about it. You just have to move on. And Melanie was using direct statements. But, you know, when you shot him or when you, you know, all of this, and he doesn't take the bait. He doesn't acknowledge Mm-mm. But what does come out is that Eric asks her if Danny ever really sexually abused her as a kid because he had learned through the course of their friendship that Melanie had lied about being mugged after soccer practice and that in Melanie responded, yes, she had lied about things for attention because she was a troubled teen, but that she wasn't lying about this. She had also lied about being raped. Mm-hmm. Eric knew this. So it's something that has just always sat on Eric's heart of Later on in life, I find out that you've lied about all these things. So I did always wonder if you just wanted him dead so that you could come back to Hookset and live or, you know, Hopkinton, whatever, and live without him being around. And you just made up the sexual abuse so that it would instigate, you know, the add fuel to the fire and right. give a, a reason, right? She, she says, you know, yes, I recognize that I did lie about those things. I was troubled. I did want attention but I wasn't lying about this particular piece. So to, to give you some after, after the murder of Danny Paquette, Melanie spent her junior year back in Alaska with her mother because she couldn't get along with Kathleen McGuire. Things were bad. She was put under, you know, she, she wasn't allowed to just run around freely like she wanted to. So her junior year, she goes back um, to Alaska, but then her senior year, she moves back to uh, Hopkinton, to live with Kathleen McGuire and Again. Philip Messier mm-hmm, for her senior year. Um, I can go into more detail. And if you want more detail about Eric and Melanie's life after high school, um, I don't think that it's very necessary for us to do it here, but you can read about it in the book. Um, Erica did tell Melanie on the phone that that day after what happened, he had never, he'd made the decision that he was never going to have a family because he didn't feel like he deserved one after what he did. And he knew that it could be taken away at any time. So he just was worried. It's a matter of time mm-hmm. before I get caught mm-hmm. now, 20 years later, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to have kids. Yep. 
And he never did. And at this point in time, when he's having this conversation with Melanie in 2003, they're 35. He says he hasn't lived a free day since that day in 1985. Eric was a master carpenter. That's what he did after school. That's what he was doing um, as the investigation continues. They do interview Eric, but there's not. It's it's the same old interviews that they've done year after year. How is this kid such a good shot? Did he hunt? Well, I will tell you about Eric. He did go into the military after high school. He was a sniper in the military. Knew it. But this shot happened. It happened before. before. But if you, he was just a some damn people good have shot. a propensity. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. just a damn good shot. Yep. But again, they wouldn't have been able to find that information because he was 17 years old. He wasn't a sniper. He wasn't a sharpshooter. And they would have found it in the 90s had they followed up more on that particular lead but it almost was like well yeah in the military he became well, a good shot that <laughs> this happened in seven he was 17 let me just throw out that when you're talking to someone who's a potential suspect and they tell you that they've been someplace and have an alibi like i don't know a state meet one would think that one would call other individuals to confirm that they were at the state meet one did mm-hmm. somebody well what do you mean one did like a friend no the investigators did call and somebody confirmed that they were there there was a lot of people that away. were like of course they were there they're the most popular like they're super yeah. popular he's he those are assumptions captain. right did you see melanie paquette there the book gets into more detail but there is a group of eric Windhor- windhurst's five core friends they're called like the gang of five or something like that some of them did know about this murder really and kept this quiet all those years it appears as though megan most of the town knew about this murder and kept it a secret because the reason for it also leaked out of well they thought they were taking out a child molester right but here's what in hindsight everybody says well, I just heard it. I didn't know if it was true or not. It was a rumor. It was a rumor. No one's like moving on. Rumor. Those five core group of friends, some of the men that end up testifying say things like, I just thought, you know, they thought he was just trying to be a big shot. But many people were interviewed and said, well, of course they were there. He's the captain of the soccer team. Of course he was at the state championship final for the girls, whatever sport it was. I can't remember now what it, what it was. But there was a lot of, well, of course he were there. they were there because the whole school was there. And then once you really, years later, get down in the nitty gritty of it, you're like, oh, wait, you know what? I didn't talk to them. I don't know if they were there. I didn't actually physically talk to them. Right. But in 1985, when they're doing these interviews and following up on these things, yeah, the whole school was at the state championship. Uh, Can you tell us what they were wearing? Those questions weren't necessarily asked. Right? A Hopkins can high sweatshirt. sweatshirt. Right, right. <laughs> That's what they were wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, wow. I'm, I'm about to get into even more here. Oh my God, there's more? There is more. Mm-hmm. The investigation continues by um, Shackford, the private investigator, um, you know, that Agrafiotis had hired yes. to do this investigation. And an interview that is done, there, there's an interview that's done with an ex-wife of one of Eric Windhurst's brothers. Oh. She's confused as to why she was not contacted in 1992 when she wrote a letter to Richard Barron after the TV special aired. She thought it was extremely obvious where the letter had come from and always wondered why she wasn't contacted. Well, you didn't put your name on it. Thank you. That's why you weren't contacted. If you want to be contacted, put your goddamn name on it. (laughs) 
You see, she had a troubled marriage with Eric's older brother. But at the time in 1985, the marriage wasn't troubled and she was a part of the family. And she said that right after the murder, there was a family meeting called and Eric confessed to his parents and his brother what he had done. The family then lied to the police anytime that they were questioned and told to never tell the truth. After all, the world is a better place without a child molester in it, right? But after watching how much the family was suffering with the loss of Danny Paquette on that TV special in 1992, that's what compelled her to write the letter. Not only did the Windhurst family know, know, but many of Eric's friends know, as I indicated before. Some of them thought he was lying to be tough. tough. Others just wanted to stay the hell out of it. Right. But Shackford does his darndest to find out who knew what and so that he could have enough to move with an arrest and prosecute. And it turns out through Shackford's investigation that most of the town knew the truth after all, but did either did not want to get involved. Many thought it was justified after the rumors of the sexual abuse had spread and others thought it was just that, a rumor. It was apparent after Shackford's investigation that the town, whether knowingly or not, was keeping a huge secret, hence the title of the book, Our Little Secret. Yeah, our, yeah, our, (laughs) our, our, our. Eric Windhurst is finally arrested on December 14th, 2005. He was living in Hookset at the time. Um, His recollection of the events was nearly identical to Melanie's until you get to the detail of where Melanie was at the time of the murder. With him? Eric points out that he had never met Danny Paquette. He did not know what the man looked like. Melanie had to have been next to him that day because she pointed him out to Eric as the person that he was to shoot. There's another theory that comes out here because of the fact that Eric Windhurst did not know Danny Paquette. There was a lot of struggle with the prosecution and the defense of how are, what's our motive here? Like, it's just not enough to say that this brother, because they were never romantic. Eric and Melanie were never romantic. They're They're brother, sister, friends. What kind of 17-year-old is just so chivalrous to just go and assassinate a friend's, you know, stepfather that he's never met before, Right. So I will tell you. That and let me throw in that wouldn't logic indicate that if you're a good friend, Eric, you go tell the police. Uh, yeah. That right. this bad man has, mm-hmm. uh, has sexually assaulted your, your friend. Well, what is uncovered during the investigation is another positive, po- po- another possible motive for Eric Windhurst. And that is that his own father had been sexually abusing his stepsisters. Okay. Not related to him, his father directly. But living in the home. Living in the home. And he was molesting them and Eric Mm -hmm. knew about it. And Eric knew about it. So it was a trigger when Melanie told him that her own stepfather had molested her as a young child. I can see the conversation happening, can't you? Mm -hmm. Where they're friends and they're confiding. They're confiding in each other and Mm -hmm. she's like... Hey, my stepfather or my, my, yeah, her stepfather was molesting mm-hmm. her. And he's like, yeah, my stepfather molested my no, sisters. No, my father molested my stepsisters. That's right. Yep. So they wow. believe this is the possible motive. Now, this is something that Eric denies. This is not something also that was ever explored in court because by the time Eric is arrested and goes through his trial, his father is 80 some years old and there was, stepsisters did confirm that that did happen. Oh. They don't know if Eric knew of it or not. And so he's never, that is never explored in court. 
So I'm just going to say it, it doesn't end up being even needing to come out in court. And you'll see why in just a minute. But that's that's another possible motive with the police are like, okay, because this isn't, it's not real strong to say, yeah. you know, you just did this for a friend. So they're, they're, I'm laying that at your feet. I mean, I'm a pretty good friend, Charnel, but uh, right. it's not going to yeah, happen, not, honey. No, no, honey. I'm, we'll, we'll go to the right <laughs> avenues of the police and whatnot, <laughs> right. and I'll be there for you to <laughs> console you. But no, I'm not yeah. taking somebody out for you. At first, the defense, um, okay, sorry, I just told you that whole thing. I know this so well that now I'm... You've jumped ahead, mm-hmm. yeah. So what happens is Eric goes ahead and pleads guilty to second-degree murder in 2006, okay? Even it, though it was clearly premeditated? Yes, they go ahead and they take a plea, and this is why. It's a plea, okay. Victor's family at the time... One of the people, they had many, many, many people to testify of what they knew. One of the people that would have had to testify would is in Victor's family was very, very ill with cancer. And they decided that it would be better to accept a second degree murder plea from Eric 20 some years later than to make their family member go through the process of a painful trial and testifying. So that is what they do. He gets 15 to 36 years in prison. Okay. Victor's not crazy about it, but in the moment, this 20 some years later is better just, you know, justice and not at the expense of harming their um, family member who was so ill with cancer at the time. Melanie Paquette Cooper was also charged for hindering apprehension and she was super shocked to learn that she'd be serving a sentence of three to six years. She oh. didn't think that she would get any jail time. She could have been charged as an accessory, oh, as a conspirator. Yeah. She could have been charged with the actual crime. Mm-hmm. The judge did not believe that Eric would just know who to shoot and that she didn't really think or know what was going to happen that day as they were walking through the woods with a rifle and she had to literally point out the man to Eric. So she's like, your defense, the judge is like, your defense of you don't know, you know, you sat by a rock wall. And she made up this story about she was asking Eric when he was going to shoot and he was like, when the when the flavor runs out of my gut, my gum that he was chewing. And Eric's like, that is total bullshit. None of that is true. Um, She did have to point out who to kill. Okay. I didn't know who he Mm -hmm. was. I will tell you that Melanie Paquette Cooper served a total of 15 months before she was back with her husband and children in Idaho. Good behavior. All that. Yeah. Have goosebumps. (sighs) Eric Windhurst asked for a suspended sentence in 2016 after serving 10 of his 15 to 36 years. Numerous Hopkinton residents and friends have written letters to the court supporting Windhurst's petition and have um, to have his sentence suspended, with several offering him a place to live. Of course, Victor and the other members of the Paquette family did not want this, and it was denied at the time. However, in the fall of 2020, Eric Windhurst was up for parole. During the video conference, Victor held up a photo from his home. He now lives in Florida. He was holding up a photo of Danny Paquette, his brother. His brother. Mm-hmm. And he said, does this look familiar, Eric? Is this the man that you saw through your rifle sights? Let me help you with this. He was a loving brother. He was respected, well-liked businessman. 
and most of all, a loving, caring father who, believe it or not, family meant everything to. So no matter how much he tried, however, Victor Paquette was unable to convince the three-person parole board to keep Windhurst locked up for another 20 years. He told the disappointed family members that his 15-year report card at the state prison, attending counseling, yep, attending counseling, working on the league of the NH craftsmen, because remember, he was a master carpenter. Furthering his carpentry skills was too clean, too impressive, and too hopeful to keep him incarcerated any longer. Eric Windhurst was paroled after serving 15 years, the minimum time for the sentence. And as it turns out, Rena Paquette's murder was not related to Danny Paquette's murder after all, but her case does still remain unsolved today, as I've said several times throughout this three parts. I want to make note as well, oh, I already did this, um, but I, it, it bears reinstating that even after all of this, no one else stepped forth to make similar claims of any kind against Danny Paquette, um, even after his, his death. So we don't know. We don't know the truth about that. And I, I found this quote very interesting. So the prosecution pointed this out, that Eric, and I would argue Melanie as well, acted as a judge, jury, and executioner of Danny Paquette based on information that was never explored in court. So this is why vigilante justice can't happen. <laughs> no, it's why we have the criminal justice system mm-hmm. that we have here. Um, I did actually look Eric up on Facebook. Yeah. And he has, so he has a Facebook account and many were when he put his profile picture up, so many were excited. They're like, hey, welcome home. Really glad to see you here. Um, we know that he was a free man for 20 years without killing anybody else after okay. this. Okay, I'm glad you went there. 17 at the time. He was 17, yeah. Um, I understand why he only served the minimum sentence, although painful, for Danny's family. Well, with some I of the changes it. to um, how juveniles are sentenced, uh, and those are recent cases, he would have likely had a sentence uh, commuted in some regard anyway. Yeah. Like, were to he have to had a life sentence mm-hmm. um, or death penalty, which doesn't happen um, with juveniles anymore. But yeah. so you pointed it out, and I'm going to say it um, because I'm sure that there are those of you who um, have family members or friends or know people or even just became attached to a case where someone was a murder victim. Depending on the situation, when they do assessments and evaluations about for risk when they're getting ready to release people, and they do risk assessments, mm-hmm. and then those are presented um, with a psychological or psychiatric to a panel, yes, it is very often that somebody who has committed one homicide is not likely to reoffend and can be safely reintegrated into the community, mm-hmm. even more so than like sex offenders, for example, yes. who are at a much higher risk to offend depending on how and what kind of sex offense was perpetrated. But yes. even that has its own nuances. I'm glad you said that because our next case that we're going to cover, we're going to talk about that, Megan. Even better. Mm-hmm. Great. So again, not saying that Charnel and I have an opinion either way on that, but we just know the psychology of it, that certain crimes that a person commits, depending on the situation, you, you may not be a risk to the public mm-hmm. later. And his psychological assessment all indicated that that he is is completely fully able to be rehabilitated into society with very very low yeah. risk of ever reoffending. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, I, I'm still sorry for his family that just went yes. through such tragedy. Like the older siblings too, yes. who we didn't hear a ton about in here because they were already out of the house, but they lost their mom, they it, lost their brother, brother, and all of their relationships with their nieces because they were taken away from them. Yep, and yeah. You know, what was remarkable to me, though, is the dedication of 
a Graphiotis. He didn't have to. I think I praise Victor for calling that department every year, knowing he was going to get the when, same response. Yeah, but Victor was, had to give his uh, Thanksgiving fuck you. And he was reminding persist. them. I'm still here. I, we are still here and we want justice for our brother and our loved one. And I think that is what kept it on the minds of a Graphiotis. And so he puts together this special unit that did a damn good job and finally was able to get the information that they needed to have some sort of justice for this family. And honestly, from the statements that Eric had made to the public, he literally said when he walked out of that prison in 2020, that is the first time since he was 17 years old that he was finally free. Yeah, he kept he secret was a long time. Tormented by this, he knew that eventually they were probably going to catch up to him, right? They didn't pursue any other charges against, you know, family members of Eric who may have concealed, knew this information and concealed it as well. Um oh, the whole town. But yeah. Well, that's just it. If you're going to for one, then it's like you have to for everyone else too. So right. they they did not do that. Um again whether that's right or wrong, that's not well. For it's me often to say. the case because if you're only told something by somebody, um, that usually isn't enough information no. alone to convict you. Yep. yep. Um, does it mean you should withhold that stuff? No. no. Right. Right. But so, so yeah, there's the case. Um. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Very. But here we are, police doing their job. Twenty years later, getting justice, and I don't know. I just. I, I hope that all of us, if something tragic like this happened to us, I would hope that there's a victor in our life that would keep fighting even when information can't keep coming forth. And then the added, you know, just the tragedy of losing their mom. And I'm really glad her death certificate no longer says suicide, as yeah, it so clearly wasn't. But uh, uh, I don't think there, if anyone knows anything about that case, come forward. Yeah, great. Yeah, great PSA there at the end. There's still an unsolved case. There here. is. There is. Are you guys ready for a brain bath? I after am ready. All this? I am ready for a brain bath. That yeah. was hours of research, by the way. So, so I'm good. Super glad to get that off off my chest here. I didn't even really read a lot of my notes. I, I like, can attest Damn. that I was looking her in the eyes for most of the podcast, and she was going from memory. So yeah, you do like using my mind's eye. Could you? That's a, yes. That's my far away look. Uh, but anyway. By the end of all this research, I was like, okay, I need a brain bath. What what could I search up? I literally typed in pony for governor just to see. Not you governor, not. mayor. Pony for mayor. I just wanted to see. Has a pony ever been a mayor? This came to your brain? Mm -hmm. Like it just went through your head? It sure did. It was after recording our um, episode where I told everybody that my Peloton Shatland name was going to be Shetland Pony. <laughs> yeah, I'm still my, scarred from I that. I don't actually That's... own a Peloton, but I no. do use their app. But You I have am... to be a Patreon to hear that episode. I am. Shetland Pony on there if you guys want to be friends. <laughs> oh, it's so silly. And I said, I'm going to join um, and yes, Peloton I, just to have a funny handle and harass people while they're working out. And I know it's Shetland Pony. But you have, if you were a Patreon, you'd know the Shetland part. Don't, don't, <laughs> listen, don't listen to that brain. <laughs> Give me something. Tell me about Pony for Mayor. This is Pony for Mayor. Uh, the title of this is Ponies Participating in Politics. Love oh, it. Love it. Patrick the Weird, Pony. Weird, are you trying to tell me there's horses' asses in politics? <laughs> what? Uh, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. If I could win right now, I'd do it. Oh, right. 
if I could win right now. Ugh, Patrick the Pony has won the hearts of people and is now the new mayor of Cockington, a village in England. Jesus. Of course I'm bringing you Cockington. <sighs> that was a total accident, by the way. We are the penis podcast. I don't even, I, this stuff just comes to us. Like, no pun intended. Right. <laughs> God. So this was an opportunity that, you know, he couldn't say nay to. Aww. That's how it's written. Isn't That's that punny. It is punny. Patrick has quite the group of followers as the Shetland pony can always be found in the town's local pub, The Drum, where his favorite drink is a pint of Guinness. I love this pony. The pony is such a celebrity that he has his own special drinking corner that is reserved especially for him. Patrick's original career began as a therapy pony. Yeah. When his owner, Kurt uh, Petrakis, took him to the pub to help locals who were mentally struggling during the pandemic. Oh. Patrick still spends times at hospitals and mental health wards. And according to the Mirror, hundreds of people have signed a petition asking for the pony to be the next mayor after their former mayor, Don Mills, passed away in 2019. For now, Patrick is the unofficial mayor as signers of the petition continue to grow. In preparation, Patrakis and his wife, the owner of Patrick, Hannah, have given Patrick his own office complete with lights and his own purple poppy emblem, a a symbol for war horse memorials and animal charities, to pay homage to his heritage. Many local politicians have participated in networking events with Patrick in an attempt to shake hands and hooves. Yes. If I walked into a pub where there was an honorary pony mayor, I would buy him a pint of Guinness. Yes, me too. I love this. I feel like every town should have some sort of animal to be part of their mayorhood as well. Some do already. Yep. That's so true. Some already have horses' asses. You know, I asked you after the last brain bath, the one from Patreon, by the way. So because it was so god awful. Um, and don't even tell people what it is. They can Patre- tune into Patreon because okay, people felt bad for me. One Patreon called me a legend. That's all I'm going to say. That's okay. all I'm going to say. I, I don't disagree. <laughs> but at the end, I said, please, please give me a sweet brain bath with like puppies or kittens or funny lawyers that happen to be cats on zoom right yep and i even asked for nice sweet brain baths from our patreons because i was scarred for life so scarred thank you for giving me patrick the pony today yes you knew this is exactly why i did i and thank you for giving me a shetland pony instead of shetland pony also thank you but still, Shetland Pony is funny. I can't wait to hear when I'm doing a live workout. I can't wait till we make you a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> Shetland Pony. <laughs> I just want to hear one of the Peloton instructors shout me out during a live workout. <laughs> Shetland Pony from Michigan. Keep it going. Oh, my God. I th- see, this is why you do things like film a Kraken and bend over <laughs> and these ones on there. You are literally trying to you screw with the Peloton instructor. I love it. Oh, can I say? Oh, God. Thank you guys for listening. If you have case suggestions, you can send them to, we're on all the social media platforms. You should follow us. We post pictures of our cases there when they're when they're available. And um, just funny shit as yeah, well. Yeah, uh, terrible stuff. If you feel, <laughs> right, if you feel like joining Patreon to binge us and get your content sooner, then we are at patreon.com 
forward slash crime curious. There's different levels there. And what else am I missing, Megan? We have a we have a website you can message us through that too, crimecuriouspodcast.com. Yeah. Our mugs are up there. Not yeah. our mug shots, just our yeah. selfies. Right. Um, hmm. I mean, I hope everybody, we're getting close to Christmas as yeah. these are being released, right? Right, So, right, right. yeah, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, mm-hmm. happy Kwanzaa. Don't murder your family. Yeah, Merry, what was the holiday that they celebrated on Seinfeld? Oh, God, you would ask me that. I cannot remember. If Jason Macy was here, he would. <sighs> he would. Yeah, tell us right away. I, I can't know. remember, but you guys know it. If you follow it, you know what yeah, we're talking about. Yeah, you guys about. are going to know. Mm-hmm. All right, so that means it's time for me to tell all of you to keep it curious. Look at you remembering. All right. Like a steel trap right here. Oh, gosh. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.